welcome to Diverse Tech Founders, a podcast about the one thing older than capital, people like you and me. Now here's your host, Abraham J. Williamson. Welcome back to Diverse Tech Founders Media. We're in Orlando where we're going to interview Brian Young, who is the founder and CEO of Home Lending Pal, and he's going to get very deep into what that is and what they're doing and how they are making an impact in the broader uh, home and mortgage and home ownership uh, landscape. But before we get into that, Brian, people want to know who you are, who you were before you became this big time, you know, entrepreneur. And like we were just talking about flying all over the place in order to spread your message. So talk to us about childhood, Brian, take us back to when you were in your tween age years or earlier. And if your childhood self would be friends with who you are today. Uh, would I be friends with myself? I, I would hope so. Um, I'm a military brat, so, you know, we traveled all over the world. I, I still call Fayetteville, North Carolina home just because my mom was stationed there the longest. But, uh, you know, we lived in Okinawa, Japan for like four years. We stayed in Washington, D.C. area for a while, DMV. I uh, still love the DMV area. Uh, and then now we live in Florida, man. And, you know, um, I got the entrepreneurship bug when I was real young. My grandmother used to, uh, to bootleg liquor out her house. And so I kind of learned business principles from her. And then uh, I ended up being the first person for my family to go to college and decided to take all that street knowledge and put it into a more legal, uh, ethical form of hustling, if you will. And, um, you know, Home Lending Pal is actually my, my fifth company. I, I've had four exits prior. Uh, I was one of the first uh, African-American consultants, digital strategy consultants for a company called Marketo out of Silicon Valley. Um, I led their global division for about two and a half years, primarily in EMA, so Europe, uh, LATAM, uh, and then Canada were kind of my main territories that I used to do a lot of work in, and then West Coast and Midwest in the United States. Uh, but I probably was most known for uh, doing the digital strategy for Obama and the DNC in 2012. You know, we found that, you know, they were really focusing on trying to get more Latinos and African Americans to vote. Uh, and I went and created a, a digital app, which, you know, at that time really wasn't a big thing back in 2012. Ended up being called one of the most open and accessible DNCs ever, and obviously the rest is history, so... That's what's up and very patriotic of you to talk about the connection to President Obama and his campaign. Let's go back to what you said uh, when you were talking about living in Japan. Uh, I know it was just a part of your life, but was it an impactful part of your life? And how do you think that experience changed your view of the world or how you moved to the space? And would you recommend that people live in another country if they're able to do so absolutely man i mean if you uh if you go to college or, or even if your high school offers a, a travel abroad kind of leadership or learning opportunity definitely take advantage of it for me being in japan you know we were on a military installation on a military base Kadena air force base and think of it like being on a college campus is the american stuff and then everything outside that campus is all japan basically i had to i was about 12 years old but i had to learn japanese you know so to be able to communicate for my parents just because uh before you get on base uh you have to live off base and your landlords are all japanese they don't really speak american there or english there i should say but it was a it was a great experience i don't think i appreciated it until i got older you know at that time that was way before social media and everything so you kind of move and every two or three years you're kind of leaving all of your friends or your friends are leaving you so you know you build these relationships and then you expect never to see these people again and fortunately that's one thing that facebook did bring to us is it brought us all back together again but being in a third world country you see how privileged americans are compared to others and then how, how hard others races work 
uh, compared to Americans. Like the Japanese, they work six days out the week. Really, Sunday is really the only day that they don't work, but they go so hard and they eat so healthy uh, compared to the American culture. And so I think, you know, you see that different places that you go throughout the world. But, you know, I think being able to experience other cultures, you really start to appreciate what you have when you're here. And it also makes you want to work for more because you see how how hard it could be uh, if you weren't in America. That makes a lot of sense. And you're actually bringing some thoughts to my mind I haven't really uh, toggled with in a minute because I lived the first 17 years of my life in Arkansas. And then when the Great Recession hit 2008, 2009, I ended up moving to Texas for my senior year of high school. Then I went to college then I went to grad school overseas, came back for law school. And what I realized is that I changed a little bit when I started moving more frequently Uh in the sense, well, I want to ask you what you feel like changed in you as you started moving and growing up and having to make new friends. Because for me, I was faced with a choice. I was either not going to really be trusting of people when I moved there because they could just leave or I was going to have to get more comfortable expediting and speeding up my ability to connect and reveal aspects of myself in order to to you know build bonds that would be lasting and I'm glad that I chose the latter because even to this day there are people that I've met back then that I'm still in touch with so I'm wondering for you if moving around has that impacted how you move in the business space at all absolutely I think you know when you're moving to different places you you immerse yourself in their culture if you're truly trying to learn because you know as Americans we automatically assume that everything revolves around us uh, but oftentimes when you're traveling and you're going to like places like Buenos Aires, other than like one street, no one there else, no one else there really speaks English. But you oftentimes go to these different countries and they speak their language, they speak English, and they often speak other languages as well. How many Americans do you know that speak multiple languages? There's there's really not that many, especially the further you get away from D.C. or, or a Miami, South Florida area, the, the less you see that. But I think more importantly, you know, as you're traveling. It teaches you to interact with different cultures, different people. You know, the the unfortunate or the fortunate side of business is that if you truly want success, you're going to have to learn how to operate in other people's environments than in places that you're going to feel uncomfortable being in. Uh, if you're a minority, oftentimes when you go into rooms, you're going to be the only person there. And they're going to be talking about things. They're going to be doing things that you've never seen before. And so, you know, traveling is really one of those good ways to to learn in, in a kind of low pressure environment how that changes for you and what you should be able to do in these big corporate boardrooms that you may not have experienced before. So are you doing business in other countries? You mentioned Buenos Aires. Are you speaking from specific situations you found yourself in? I used to. So, I mean, I used to be, I've been a digital consultant for about 20 years now. So I used to have to go to LATAM or uh, Europe, uh, they call it EMA, even ANZ or New England, uh, or sorry, not New England, uh, Australia, New Zealand to do work. And oftentimes when I was there, I would be there with people that were from that country. Uh, now, most of the time I was fortunate they actually spoke English, but a lot of times, like I said, other than this one consolidated area, when you're actually moving around, you know, like you can't just call your Uber, your taxi driver and be like, hey, I want to go here and say it in English. Like you have to learn how to speak in their native tongue. And so I think those type of experiences just open my eyes to, to different things. But you also get a chance to interact with people and understand the challenges, the plight that they go through. And discrimination happens everywhere. But I think those type of experiences have allowed me uh, to just have a better ability to, to connect and to emphasize with people that may have a different type of uh, challenge than I have being an African-American man in America. 
do you feel like you brought your authentic self or you were constantly trying to adapt to the local environment? I think I bring my authentic self, but I've learned to adapt to that environment. And I think that's a different way to say it. But, you know, I, I think I, I am who I am. Like, I'm not going to change being a, a six foot two African-American man wherever I go. But I can, you know, show people that, you know, hey, I am cultured. Hey, I do know how to interact with people. You know, you oftentimes, you know, food is probably the biggest thing that brings people together, food and music. And sometimes you have things that you don't want, like some countries, you know, eating cow brains or cow tongues is a luxury. And, you know, their, their head of their family, the godfather, etc., will offer these things to you. And you kind of have to take it because if you're not, it's like a big sign of disrespect. So you ate I, cow tongue. I have ate cow tongue before, man. Stuff that I thought I would never do. I have done it just because it's a sign of respect for those families. And I will tell you that the people that had me do that, those are families that they are Asian, actually, but they will go to war for me, man. Like I've, I've called sometimes like, hey, I really need a favor. And it's been done that same day. So, you know, that, that is the type of cultural difference that I think can make a difference. And as a culture, just us as African-Americans, we have to look at it as, you know, no matter what race you are, not everyone's good in that race, not everyone's bad in that race. Uh, there are people from other races that are, you know, genuinely good humans, and you have to find those good humans and find a way to everyone to, to do well and succeed together. I'm with you. You've alluded to this a number of times that you, uh, you're a digital whiz kid, or at least you were. Now you're a digital whiz man. But talk to us about the first and earliest experiences you had with technology. What got you into it? How did you go from you know, somebody who was curious to somebody who was teaching others, including the president of the United States? Um, when I was like 16, I, I tried to build my first website on Yahoo GeoCities, but I'm, I'm showing how ancient I am in the technology world. But uh, it was horrible. It was one of those kind of think of it like a, a Squarespace or, a, you know, a site like that where you can go build your own website. So it was a horrible website. But I did it because when you look at Forbes or when I looked at Forbes back then, I realized that uh, there were really three categories that everyone that, that was on the Forbes list were coming from. It was either banking, financial, particularly hedge fund managers, uh, large real estate tycoons, or technology. I figured that I wasn't smart enough to do hedge funds just because I really didn't like numbers, like the formulas, like remembering formulas just wasn't fun to me. Real estate at the time is really one of those things where you have to really be liquid to be able to you know, take advantage of a huge real estate deal or a good real estate deal. And then technology seemed like the, the only one that I could actually do something and, and be good at it. So... You know, I started when I was like 16. I started taking certification courses. So, you know, for everyone that's wondering, like, you know, how do I break into the space if I don't go to college? Just take certifications. You know, I, I actually ended up dropping out of college my senior year because I had taken so, much, so many certifications. I got a very large contract and I could no longer afford to do both for myself. And I made what I thought was the best decision for me. But, you know, I was able to do that. That company got acquired and I went to work for Silicon Valley and I got a six-figure salary and I didn't even have a college degree. Um, now, I ultimately did go back to get the degree because I promised my mom I would. But, you know, for anyone thinking about how do I break into the tech space, there's plenty of certifications that you can take, whether it's through Salesforce or Marketo or Eloqua, which are usually the ones that, that pay the most in terms of their position for hourly. But, uh, yeah, certifications is how I kind of got involved into it. I see. And those certifications put you on a path and a journey. You mentioned that you've had exits before now. But what is Home Lending Pal, and why did you decide to start this particular company? What was the the genesis of the idea, the origin story, and why are you keeping on going with it? Yeah, so you know, Home Lending Pal itself is an app that allows people to 
connect their uh, their banking information, their credit information, and to allow artificial intelligence to automatically find uh, homes that they would be qualified or even programs they would be qualified for. So uh, that may be credit assistance known as special purpose credit programs. That may be down payment assistance or even uh, the ability to leverage your last 12 months of rental history to help you get qualified for a home. Uh, there's really twofold for the reason that I, I did it. The first was that, you know, there are a lot of, right now the home ownership gap is wider than it was when segregation was legal. And there are a lot of programs that are rolled out that are really intended to help underserved communities, particularly African-Americans and Latinos, but none of us know about them. Like the, the people that use them don't actually look like us. So you have billions of dollars in grant funds, billions of dollars in grant money that are intended to help us, but yet no one's taking advantage of it. But yet we're all suffering from the higher cost from inflation, et cetera. Why? Like why? You're telling me there's a billion dollars that has our name on it, but it's just sitting there or going it's, somewhere it's, else? It's just sitting there. I mean, one, because you look at it from the loan officer level, um, most loan officers are not trained, properly trained on how to get a person qualified for these programs. You know, sometimes it takes a little bit more work. I mean, most of the loan officers that you work with are commission-based, which means that they only make money when you close on your home loan. And when I am working off of a, of a highly commission-based position, when a person that comes in looking to buy a $700,000 home versus one that's only looking to buy a $200,000 home, it's the same amount of work, but my commission is bigger for the $700,000 home. So we kind of just fall through the cracks in that regard. The second part of it is that a lot of minorities are what I would call fringe buyers, which are that, you know, in many cases, you need at least a 620 plus FICO score to be able to buy a home. A lot of us are right there between that 600 to 619 mark. And there is a just a little bit of work that needs to be done. But if you're not able to close right there, you kind of just get forgotten about. So, you know, they call those withdrawals in the mortgage space. And so uh, you have that part. And then the final part is more, much more of a personal thing for me is that uh, oftentimes, again, because you have not again, not everyone's good, not everyone's bad. But, you know, in my particular case, my mom was a military veteran. When we bought her dream home, she wasn't even put into a VA loan. She was put into a 15 year uh, arm, which basically means that the interest rates flip after three years, basically. And so uh, you look back at the subprime mortgage crisis. We were kind of caught up in that that whole thing that happened and we nearly went into foreclosure. Uh, for the home. And so you fast forward, you know, I, I go and I have corporate success and now I'm living in Miami. I have the the high rise, you know, nearly the penthouse. It wasn't quite the penthouse, but it was nearly the penthouse condo. You know, I, I have multiple cars, exotic cars, and, you know, all what we, we, we as African-Americans would typically consider the pinnacle of wealth um, that I've made it. But, you know, as I got to, to Miami, uh, I met one of my mentors, you know, a guy, Thomas Manning, who actually lived in Aventura. And when you go to Aventura, it's a different vibe in Miami. Like those are older people. They're guys that really have wealth. And I think there's a difference between being rich and being wealthy. You know, these are guys that we're having dinner and they're casually talking about Lambos and Ferraris as if they're Honda Accords and Honda Civics. You know what I mean? Like, like, so there's a difference there. And I think that opened my eyes to like, hey, there is a lot that I can learn. And I thought that I was wealthy, but really I'm not wealthy right now. And then as my friends started coming around, I was like, you know, I wish I could share this knowledge with them. And that's really where that, that artificial intelligence came in. Because, like, I can't talk to everyone, but you can download an app and interact with artificial intelligence. And it can help you figure out kind of how, how to make that next step. And that's really where the concept has bloomed and grown from there.
Okay, so I'm with you. So if I'm listening to this right now and I want to own a home one day, is this product for me? And if so, what would my experience be like? Absolutely. So you would go download the app. You can go to the, the Apple Store the, uh, or the, the Android Store. You would put in Home Lending Pal and download the app. And uh, what it would do is you would connect your, your bank account. You would verify your bank account as well as your credit. You would do a soft credit pool. Uh, you're rewarded for this. We, we actually give you cash what you're closing. Like I said, there's over there's billions of dollars in government grant funds that are really intended to help people explore home ownership. Uh, so we have a reward system that as you interact with the system, as you learn about these programs, you're actually getting cash for closing from those same programs. Like, yeah, so we're really making it much more of a, a positive, interactive experience. Uh, but what you're doing is, and we don't have access, we don't have the ability to take money out your bank account or anything like that. But what we do have the ability to do is basically to analyze your habits and help you better understand. If you say, hey, my goal is to buy a half million dollar home. But right now, all I can afford is a $250,000 home. The system is smart enough to analyze your spending habits and tell you kind of where you need to make changes to be able to go buy that half million dollar house and what that would look like for you in terms of time frame. Uh, As it's doing that, you're able to input, you know, what are the actual features of that home? You know, a lot of people get tied up with the home itself. Like, you know, there's it's because it's a badge. It's a symbol of honor. Uh, for yourself, and it's something that you're probably going to be in for the next 10, 15 years at least. But you may not realize it. You may be going and saying, hey, I want a home that has a pool, a jacuzzi, and granite countertops. And you're thinking that everywhere else I've seen, you know, this home is it's cost 500000 That's what I need for a home. But there might actually be newer construction bills that are 350000 So the system is then smart enough to go out and find those uh, those homes. And it analyzes the MLS, and it pulls in homes that you're qualified for. But it also, as you're shopping, uh, studies your behavior to find out, you know, is that truly what you really want? Or are you just thinking that's what I want? Subconsciously, you're looking at, hey, I really want a four-bedroom home because I'm looking to start a family. Uh, I wanted it to be in a good neighborhood with different uh, school systems. So as it learns all of that, it kind of gives you back that in a, in a better process, basically. That's super interesting. You've had a few users so far. What are you seeing in the data? Like, now that you've had people who have used the platform, like... What are you actually seeing come through? We had a thesis when you go into it, but now that you've had a little bit of time pass and a little bit of usage, anything jumping out at you? Man, it, it's been much better than what we expected. And again, I come from a conversion background, but you know, about 70, 73% of our total database are active users right now, right? Which is super high. You know, um, Typically from an industry perspective, about 2% of people convert on forms uh, in terms of just verifying their information or just giving you first name, last name, email address. We have about 58% of the people, so pretty much six out of every 10 people that come or see our ads will create a profile with us. Um, And out of that, 73% of them will come back multiple times a month to engage with the platforms. Those numbers are really great themselves, but I think what I take more pride in is that one out of every three of our users uh, will verify or will do the connection to do the bank account uh, as well as the credit connection as well. Because that's actually optional. We made that optional now because we understood that there are gig workers or some people that don't have bank accounts. And so knowing that one out of every three users are verifying that information and coming back really shows that there is a desire for underserved communities to buy homes. It's just understanding what your options are and how to get to those options. And so we're really excited about that, man. And I think um, you know, just keeping those conversion numbers high will, will really kind of help us. And then obviously there's inventory problems within the industry, but we'll have to figure out uh, you know, as an industry, how to solve that. But I definitely think that the the desire to grow and to, to own for home ownership is still there for a lot of Americans. And uh, like I said, you know, we have seen a, a good 
increase or uptick, uptick in the number of users we have as these past couple months where we talked about kind of recession, the collapse of the economy, relatively speaking, has happened. You know, we've seen pretty much a 238% month-over-month user growth in that time period. So people are coming in. Uh, you know, our focus is really just trying to get it better. We um, had an artificial intelligence that we built out on Watson. Uh, we just left Watson, and now we're on ChatGPT. So uh, so it's getting more and more powerful. And I think the more people that come, not only are the more government assistance do we get, but uh, we also get other larger companies that are kind of giving us access to their technology to, to make the experience better for everyone. So you're helping people get into homes. What is the next step for the company? Uh, you're growing your user base, but what is uh, what can we expect to see in terms of wins moving forward that you care to share? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, we have deep conversations, even contracts out with six, seven of the top 10 lenders in the country right now. So we're bringing on bigger, bigger lenders nation. Uh, and it's really, I mean, obviously we still work with credit unions and other smaller lenders, independent mortgage bankers. But really, I think the next thing that people are going to see is that we just recently received government approval to operate nationally. And so we're scaling quickly. Um, you know, keep that to, to put that into perspective. It took us about a year and a half to get four states, which were North Carolina, Florida, Oklahoma and Colorado. But the success in those states that we've had just in terms of just engagement, and building trust. Like most people do not trust financial institutions. They trust us because we're not there to truly sell you anything. Like, can you connect to a lender through our system? Absolutely. Um, do we have a backend system that monitors your application to determine that you're being treated fair? Absolutely. Uh, do we report in real time if discrimination and stuff is happening to consumers? Absolutely. But the real uh, win for us is the fact that now uh, we're able to operate across the country. The only two states that we're still waiting on are New York and Hawaii. Those are the only two states that we don't operate in yet. But outside of that, uh, we've gotten immediate ac- uh, opportunity to to operate nationally. And like I said, you know, seven out of the top ten lenders in the country are finalizing contracts to take advantage of that. So, um, so a lot of work there. Uh, and then the biggest thing is just really finding lenders that uh, want to join the Fairness Alliance, as we call it. Uh, and it's not just about getting people. Uh, to submit an application to a lender. Like we, again, we want to monitor and ensure that they're being treated fairly and that they're giving them the best shot to being the homeowner. So that all sounds great. Honestly, if you're listening to this right now or just in this car with us right now, having this conversation, uh, it sounds like it's been all good all the time, but I know for a fact, actually, that that's not true because it couldn't be true because everybody goes through various different things along the way. So if you were going to point to a moment where you either had doubts or you struggled or it was a kind of a low point for you, if you were to take us back to that story, what immediately comes to mind and how did you climb out of it? Yeah, we, we actually don't have to go back that far. I mean, all the good stuff that I'm telling you right now uh, comes after pretty much the last six, seven months of fighting just not to be pushed out of my own company. Whoa. Yeah, like we had three different, uh, I won't call them hostile takeovers, but overly aggressive term sheets that were not comparable to what we had done in terms of what we had achieved with the company to that stage. Um, and this was before we, you know, in August of last year, we had not received uh, the government clearance to actually start monetizing the system. Even though we had lenders and people utilizing the system, we couldn't actually accept funds uh, because we had to verify that we were not a violation of RESPA, which is a, a regulatory law in the real estate space that just basically says that you cannot be compensated for not doing anything. And our system is basically think of it like a counseling app, like it counsels you. Um, but at that time, we had not 
then kind of signed off on that. And so I met Christy Ferco, who was the head of mortgage for Wells Fargo. Literally, I mean, I've known her for a while, but I showed her a, a term sheet that would have basically had us give up about 33% of the company uh, at our Series A, which probably would have meant that we would have been in great jeopardy for losing the company, uh, losing control of the company by Series B. And she told me, don't take the deal. Like She was like, you know, we're going to be a customer. Don't take the deal. We'll help you. Um, you would think that, you know, investors knowing that you have the second largest lender in the country at that time ready to, to do work with you, that they're like, hey, like, you know, this is something that we're going to pour money into. Uh, you know, we're going to help you be prepared so that when Wells Fargo comes, everything will be ready. They did the exact opposite. They tried to take it from us. I mean, to the point where just in December, uh, a group that we were meeting with weekly um, gave us a term sheet that was would have left me with 1.14% equity and pretty much pushed all of my other early investors out of the business. What? Right. To the point where, and it gets worse, you know, you can't say like, you know, the first time we met with them the next week after, like they literally waited to the very end. And then uh, after that, they, they had me get up in front of the rest of my t- uh, my advisory board, our, our cap table and, and say, oh, I, I've been grossly misunderstanding on video. They forced uh, you they forced me to, to that. say that you underperformed. Underperformed. And uh, this is literally probably two weeks after we had just signed the, a deal with Veterans United that was well over $25,000 a month in revenue once we got them set up. So um, so I had to fight that off, man. I mean, now it's a battle that a lot of minority founders have had to fight uh, these last few months. And it's, it wasn't just me. You know, you look at the actual data with the thoughts of recession and stuff like that, like the number, the amount of investment that went into minority founders in Q4 of last year was like point or 0.12%. So think about that. Like all the money that's that's being invested into companies that's being put into different high growth tech startups, we got less than 1%, less than half a percent of that. You know, I literally had people that I was already on there, and I've raised 4.5 million today, you know, and I was already part of their portfolio. They would clearly call me in and say, hey, Brian, how's everything going? And I'm like, you know, well, you know, we, we could use a bit of additional investment to, to extend our runway so we can make it past this time so we can get to the Wells Fargo deal. And they were like, yeah, you know, our focus right now was, uh, you know, really taking care of our portfolio company, putting more money into those companies so that we can ensure their sustained, sustained ses- success while we get past this rough time. And we're not going to give you anything, but we just want you to know that that's what we're focused on right now. So if you need anything, let us know. And it's like, why do you keep asking if I need anything? When I told you what I needed, you're not doing anything for me. So that was really frustrating. But I mean, that, that is a, a plight that is going on with pre- every, every much, uh, every African-American or uh, underserved, you know, woman, we're all in the same boat and we're not getting the money right now. So it's like you have to survive by getting through revenue. And I think as the the thing about that is that it made me realize that even though home lending power was a good idea, in their minds, we were just a research and development product. Like I had to turn it into a real business, which is at that point what shifted for us. And we brought in uh, our advisory board. You know, we have a couple guys that used to run sales and business development for Rocket Mortgage. One of the guys is a former CMO of a company called New Res, which is like a very big independent mortgage banker. Um, and uh, we focused on revenue. And so now we're at a point now where next month we should do about $50,000 a month in uh, revenue. And by June, uh, we should be doing at least two hundred fifty to $400,000 a month in revenue. So uh, gross revenue, that's not full profit. But, you know, again, if, if we didn't go through that, uh, it definitely doesn't open my eyes up to the fact that, you know, these people aren't trying to support me. They're trying to take it. So, you know, we really try to have find a way to sustain ourselves now. Wow. Uh, that's a lot. 
And you're right. It's something that is probably more common than we might think uh, across the board. People having to grow up quickly yeah. uh, and face face the music before it stops. I want to go to something else that often comes up in conversations with founders and they're talking about, you know, how they're going to capitalize their business moving forward. It's the topic of accelerators. And I think you are probably one of the best people in the country to talk to this about other than someone who's actually running an accelerator because you have been in a dozen of them, not figuratively, but actually you've been in 12 accelerators or so. So talk to us about why you chose to go and return and come back and come back again. And also if you're a founder right now, if you were going to you know, give somebody some insight into the advantages, disadvantages, if it's good, if it's bad, what would you say to those folks right now? And if they had, like, what would make someone walk away from that? Yeah, I mean, obviously I've been in 12 of them. It wasn't a desire to be in 12. I think, you know, there there's very limited access to capital for minority founders and for me, it was really twofold. The first is that, you know, even though I had been around tech, like I didn't know investors. So I had to go learn how to pitch a business, how to raise capital. And and unfortunately, I feel like it took me 12 times to do that. The second part was really more so the financial part of it. You know, most of these investors are giving you anywhere from 25,000 to 125,000 plus in, in investment. And for us, we needed that. We needed that investment. You know, we needed that capital. And many times, you know, these these I, I said I raised four point five million. And a lot of that came from groups that were associated with those accelerators. You know, oftentimes, you know, again, and I, I tell going back to our, our conversation up front, you know, your network really determines your network. And we have to find ways to build relationships with people that are outside of the, the black community to get access to capital. And it took me 12 accelerators to, to be able to do that. Now, the unfortunate side of the accelerators is that everyone isn't equal in the sense of just what you get from the accelerator. Like, I think a lot of them right now are really perfect for helping companies raise, raise kind of pre-seed, seed stage funding. But once you get to like Series A, like what you learn in an accelerator isn't necessarily what is going to help you be successful. And uh, I know that because I've, I've met like a lot of the people that I interact with now are unicorn founders. And I mean, there's some stuff they tell me I like, yeah, I can never do that as a black founder. Like, you know, I have one guy who's like, hey, I don't even take a meeting. Like if an investor reaches out to him, he doesn't even take a meeting unless they give him a term sheet. As a black founder, you can never do that. But there's processes, things that he's done that have kind of helped me understand how to better position my company and my brand as I go into accelerators or even in front of investors. And the, like biggest, what? Um, the biggest thing is like, Investors are like banks, man. Like you have to make it seem like you don't really need their money. I'm just here because I, I, I love your advice. I want your advice, but I don't need your money. Your money is valuable, but I don't need it. The less you need them, the more they actually want to give you the money. The second part is take the power away from the investors. Oftentimes we want to do so much to prove that we're ready for investment, that you're giving them insight into everything that one can just help them say no. If you are, if they are serious, they'll deliver a term sheet, but don't offer financial information before they give you a term sheet. Again, that's what other founders are doing, but it just shows that, hey, you're seriously committed to me. And plus, there's a lot of time that goes in on my side, preparing access to my data room, giving you access to my data room. So if they're serious, they'll give you a term sheet and then they don't have to sign the term sheet until everything else checks in, checks off for you. So, uh, so that part of it, only meet with managing directors or partners. You know, they're the only group that only two uh, I guess, job titles, if you will, that have the ability 
to tell you yes. Like, I don't waste my time meeting with analysts or anything like that. Now, do you want to build relationships? Absolutely. But analysts, all they can do is tell you no. And that's what their job is, to do a bunch of due diligence, a bunch of research just to tell you no. So if you are at a point where you have serious investors looking at you, if the managing director or the partner can't take time to meet with you, they're probably not worth being on your cap table at all anyway. Uh, And the last part is that, you know, uh, coming out of what I just came out of the last six, seven months, you know, it's okay to slow down. Like, I know you need the capital, but once they give you that term sheet, it's okay to say, hey, before I sign this, can I talk to other CEOs in your portfolio to get a true understanding of who you are? Because when things are good, when they're excited about making that investment, everything is perfect. You know, everything is great. They're going to show you a different, it's like any relationship. They show you a different person, but when things are rough, you need to know who you're really dealing with and what type of person they really are. Because a lot of these people are are wolves in sheep's clothing, you know what I mean? Mm. And, And you have to learn to be a wolf yourself to deal with that. But, you know, you'd rather be prepared and know that you're dealing with the wolf up front than to think you have a sheep and... You know, the market changes or, or something that's completely out of your control. And now you have people trying to push you out your company, you know. So those are probably the, the five critical points that I would say in terms of learning how to deal with investors that you learn from accelerators. But outside of that, um, you know, again, use it for what it's worth. Obviously, accelerators like the Y Combinator or Techstars are, are going to have more kind of brand recognition assigned to those. So you'll get a little bit more out of them. But accelerators are also very expensive capital in terms of how much they're taking off your term sheet or term sheet or on your cap table. Like most of them, you know, you're giving up six to seven percent. Now, we were fortunate that we didn't have to do that for every accelerator. Uh, you know, we were, you know, again, we go into negotiations in a position of power and that it doesn't matter if they're if they're a accelerator, an investor or anyone like go in with a position of power. Like this is what we're going to do. Either you'll meet these rules or you won't. Uh, and if they say no, then, hey, that wasn't for for you. But Wait a minute, slow down. So how do you do that? Because it sounds easy to say, hey, go in there with confidence, baby. But, like, how does that actually play out, especially with people who are in dire straits? Yeah, so, I mean, but keep that in, keep in mind, too. Like, we have very rapid user growth, and we, we obviously have very rapid revenue growth. So you have to have a business that shows that you have growth and scale. You just don't have access to capital. What does that look like? And I wanted to ask you this, too, in the accelerators before, after or during. When did you start to see traction that gave you leverage? Yeah, I mean, surprisingly, we saw it very early, man. Like we our first accelerator was through IBM. So we came out the gate like strong, like super strong with what we had that helped us. But we were fortunate that, you know, we had users that were coming in our very early, like our beta version of our app. They were saying, hey, you know, if you guys get this to work, I would definitely use it. And it was like eight out of 10 users. So we start off from out, out the gate with something that people were like, hey, I really want this. Because you got to think about it. Like if you were to try to go buy a home right now, where would you go just to kick the tires? And you don't want anyone to call you. You don't want realtors to call you yet. You don't want lenders to call you yet. You just want to know like, hey, what do I qualify for? Like I want a very accurate measure of that. Where would you go? There is nowhere to go. You know, you go to LendingTree or NerdWallet or Bankrate. You're immediately bombarded by sales calls. You go to a realtor, you know, even if they're a good realtor, they're probably still going to try to refer you to a, a, a lender, their preferred lender that's going to try to qualify you based on what you have right now, not necessarily where you want to be. And if you're not qualified, they'll probably kick you to the curb, you know, so there's really nowhere that you can go to explore that. We were the first ones to give you that and we didn't bombard you with sales calls. So, you know, if you have an idea that really makes sense, like you're going to get that traction up front. Like you're going to know like, Hey, I'm onto something. Uh, 
And then the last part is getting to the capital. So, but I guess to answer your question, like, what if you don't have that? Uh, if you don't have that and you have, you're a little bit more at the mercy of the accelerator, but that's okay. Like, you know, if you just have a good idea and they're willing to give you 125,000 for 6% of your company, do it. But keep in mind that you get out what you put in. So when you go into this accelerator, it's like what I tell college kids all the time. Every year that you graduate or that a, at North Carolina State, when they release, they have anywhere from twenty to 40,000 uh, kids that are graduating with you. Everyone's got the same, same kind of level, the same kind of knowledge. How do you get more than what the person next to you has? You have to do more. You have to put more work in. So, yes, you're going to have weekly meetings, which everyone has to come to. But your job is to make enough friends, enough uh, partnerships or even friendships with the people that are running the program. So they're making introductions to different people that are associated with the program. So as you come out, your network, again, is big enough where it can expand your network. Um, and I tell people that all the time is that, you know, if you're just putting in, if you're doing the same amount of work as someone else that's right there next to you, you're not going to get ahead. It's really what, what, what everyone else is. It's the Kobe Bryant mentality. Like, you know, when everyone else is, is out partying, I'm in the gym working. When everyone else is out celebrating how they're, they're successful, I'm in the gym working. Like, that's really how you have to have an accelerator mentality is that this is three months, but I'm going to lock in for these three months or, you know, and in this three-month period, I'm going to try to change everything about my company. I'm going to find every weakness in my company, and I'm going to address that. That's really the hardest thing to do is for someone to tell you that your, your baby is ugly or to criticize one aspect of your business. But if you can take that criticism and fix it, you put yourself in a great opportunity for success. And we were able to do that really well, man. It sounds like you have and with a dozen accelerators, you know, living in multiple countries and cities and situations, uh, being a part of the, you know, administration, or at least the push to get into one of the former administrations, you come across a lot of people. How in the world do you maintain and manage a network that seems to have some hockey growth itself? Are there any ways that you do that? Because I can already tell in our interactions that you're a busy guy, but it doesn't feel like you are, you know, uh, pushing me to the side or say, hey, hang a minute, wait. Like, you just make people feel as though they are important. Where did that come from? I mean, I think that mentality just came from my mother. You know, um, she always told me, you know, it didn't, doesn't matter how much you make. You know, you treat another executive the same way that you treat the janitor of the company. You know, you make everyone feel like that little, the limited time they have with you is valuable. You know, even in our relationship, you know, we don't talk every day. But when we do talk, you know, my phone has been on silent. Like, it's not like I've been sitting here answering my phone the whole time that I've been around. And I think technology, while it makes us instantly accessible, people are so big and trying to prove that they're so busy, that they're so important, that they forget that there's just small human interactions that matter. You know, when I go to dinners with executives, and again, it doesn't matter if I'm catering to you or you're the CEO of IBM, you know, I don't have my phone out. I'm not on my phone. I'm not checking my phone. When I'm interacting with people, you have my full attention. I think, you know, being remote obviously makes that a little bit harder because, you know, when you're doing a video conference, it's a little bit easier to get distracted. But I try to give everyone my full attention because I realize, you know, I was once in your position and I could easily go back to being in your position. You know, whether that's good or bad, you know, I could easily go back to being in that position. So that's what always plays in my mind is that the same people that you pass on the way up are the same people that you have to pass on the way down. And I realize that and I remember that. And then, you know, again, I can't help everyone. I think as you become successful, as you start reaching a level of success, you realize that everyone can't be involved in that process. 
Um, but, you know, when you can, you know, take a, a moment to give someone a piece of advice or, or just even guidance, you never know how that might change their trajectory in life. And so I try to I try to do what people did for me. And there's so many different successful people that I could just rattle off names now. But there's so many different successful people that just took the time for me to give me 30 minutes of their time. And so, again, you can't do it for everyone. But for the ones that you can, you try to do it and you try to make sure they have your undivided attention in that time. I love that. And you've mentioned some powerful family members, your mother, your grandmother, and your life so far. Uh, in what positive ways has your entrepreneurial journey had the reverse um, impact where it's helped you and your family or in your personal life? You have your nephew here, which, you know, do you normally take your family members like to business type situations and scenarios? Like what is driving this and how are you able to navigate both worlds of the professional world being excellent at that and also being present, available and inviting to your own family? Um, honestly, I mean, I'm, I'm just starting to do that now. Uh, what prompted that? Why did you, why did you want to make that switch in the first place? People telling me I should, man, you know, I, I've never really been a person that likes to, to brag about himself or to, to overly talk about myself. But I've realized that this has really been the first company that I've had to do that. Uh, I've had to go out there and be the face of a company and, and the face of a vision and a movement. And it didn't make sense for me as much, as much as I mentor people, as many mentees as I have and stuff like that to not do it for my own family members. Surprised my nephew, like he actually volunteered, like he's like, hey, can I go to the interview tomorrow? So, I mean, I think that that is cool, but I think it's also showing like right now, like keep in mind, like my own personal view of myself is changing. Like I'm just now accepting myself for being successful. Like, you know, you had met me three years ago, I would have never talked about the stuff I did for Obama. Like, I didn't talk about it for 10 years. Nobody really even knew about it. Why? Um, partially because when I did the Obama stuff, like, shortly after that, we lost three of our top five biggest uh, clients at the time. They were, like, they were Republican supporters, and they were like, you know, we're going out of business for Obamacare, so we want you to go out of business, too. So, you know, that nearly sent that company out of business. I was One, I was afraid of it. Um, two, you know, like Trump or not, I think what it showed you is that America itself is still very much a 50-50 divided country, you know, and a lot of times your feelings of discrimination, your feelings of uh, whether you're black, a woman, LBGTQ+, like your feelings are often marginalized in this country as, oh, racism doesn't happen here. Systemic racism is no longer prevalent in the United States. Trump showed us that it still is. And oftentimes just going in saying that, hey, I did this stuff for Obama was enough reason, enough cause, believe it or not, for me to lose a contract, you know, because it's really a 50-50 throw up. It's a really a 50-50 toss up. These are the same people that their job is to ensure diversity and inclusion. That one comment could cost me the deal. And keep in mind, like when I did, even though we talk about Obama, I put a, I put a, I put Renee Elmer's in Congress too. Like she's a Republican in North Carolina. So I worked both sides, you know, and the, the joke when I was younger, I was young and dumb and all I really, I won't say I cared about money, but the, the joke was red or blue. All I saw was green. And at that time, you know, when I was doing consulting work in my agency for, for different political campaigns, like I pretty much tell my, could you see a lot behind the scenes that really turned you off for a lot of different industries? But I would tell my employees like, hey, if you ever feel like you're uncomfortable working on this campaign, just let me know and we'll move you to another project. But you're going to see some stuff that you may not agree with from a personal perspective that's going to question your own personal morals for the stuff we're doing. That really kind of changed a lot for me in that regard. But yes, yeah, so I, I say that to say that, you know, 
for years, I never saw myself as being successful. I never really accepted myself for being successful. And I think that's a an issue that a lot of minorities in, in, in the corporate world will tell you that they often feel like they have to be two people. You know, they have to code switch. They have to be one person at work and a completely different person at home. You know, I, I've had tattoos since I can remember. I used to cover up, like, I remember, like, now my friends joke about me because if you look at my early interviews, every interview I come to, I'm wearing a turtleneck and long sleeves. I remember. I'm covering up everything. That. And everybody was like, hey, are you trying to be like, like, uh, Steve Jobs with a turtleneck and stuff. It was like, no, I mean, it just so happened that it would be, and mind you, keep in mind, like I'm doing all this, I'm in Florida. I'm in Florida. And I remember like, I talked about the accelerator. There was one, the wire accelerator that was in Northern Texas during the height of the pandemic. And it was nothing but minority founders. They made us go to Texas at the height of the pandemic. So I literally was risking my life to for this company. And I get there and it's like, people are judging like, like everywhere I went, People were constantly talking about like the way I was dressed. And it's like, I'm not even really like, again, I'm not dressed in any kind of bad way. It's just like, I'm wearing, like it's hot. It's 80, 90 degrees in Florida and Texas. So I'm wearing short sleeves. And because I'm, and it wasn't that I was wearing short sleeves that was the problem, is that I had tattoos on my body. So I say that because it made me realize that there are so many people that are afraid to be themselves. They're authentic, true selves. And so now that's why you see me when I go into these different interviews, like you can see that I have, tattoos all over my arm. I have a leg sleeve. Like I wanted more young kids that looked like me to not be afraid of who they are. And I'd realized that, you know, my own family was looking at me different. And it's like, okay, well, y'all are going to try to support me. Y'all want to get in tech. I might as well show you guys what it's like so that when you get here, you're not surprised at kind of what the experience is. And now, you know, I have my younger brother that works with us. You know, he goes, gets a chance sometimes to, to go to different places in the country. But I think that's really important is that, you know, it's not just seeing success like we see success all the time but think about like think about it for yourself like outside of entertainment and when i say entertainment i'm talking about athletes rappers tv stars movie stars how many black americans do you know they're successful at are in those categories many people can't tell you that they don't realize that the richest black man in the country right now is a guy named robert f smith he runs a venture capital firm called vista equity partners he came from goldman sachs like people don't realize that the richest black man in the world it's not an entertainer. It's not Jay-Z. It's not P. Diddy. It's Robert Smith. And so I wanted more people. But the unfortunate side, and there's nothing wrong with what Jay-Z and them guys are doing. Like, I, I don't knock that. But the unfortunate nature of, of it is that a lot of us, even myself, we grow up with hoop dreams. You know, we, we want to go to the pros. We want to change our family's life. And we think that becoming a professional athlete or professional entertainer is the only way to do that. Even my nephew, he wants to be a rapper. If you ask him what he wants to be, he don't want to be a techno technology entrepreneur. I mean, he likes that his uncle is, but he wants to be a rapper or athlete. But the unfortunate nature is that everyone can't go to the league. And even if you do make it to the league, the average life expectancy is only three to five years. So what are you going to do after sports? And so uh, I felt like this was a good way. And I, I talked to a lot of athletes about trying to create those paths so that, and those opportunities so that after sports, you can have something to fall back on. And obviously technology is a good place. That's where the world is going. So that's kind of why I started trying to do more of this. I love that. You just said a lot right there. And it makes you wonder like why people are so resistant to describing themselves as being a success. And has it led to any, like you making that switch? Are you flourishing more now? Or do you say, oh, I'm taking a big risk? Or do you actually feel like you're a better entrepreneur now that you are able to say you worked for Obama if you choose to wear your tattoos? Are you a better founder because of it? I'm learning to be a better egoless founder. When I was younger and I used to, to rely on those stuff, it usually came with having a big ego. 
I think now I'm able to do that and I'm able to remove the ego from it and only leverage that as a way for us to do more business. And I do think we're flourishing from that. I don't think we get seven out of the top 10 lenders in the country talking to us about integrating our solution if I didn't mention those stuff. Like we have, even for, for some of the bigger banks that we've been talking to, like the first five, six months, and we had their, their I'll use Wells for an example. Like we, I know Christy personally, and she runs their mortgage division, and she's been our biggest advocate for why they should leverage us. But her internal team, the dynamics change the minute that I said, oh, well, by the way, I've done this before. Like I'm not just giving you an idea. Like this is an idea. It's a process that I've executed on before with a political campaign. And there's really not, I mean, when you really think about it, there's really not much difference between voter suppression and mortgage suppression. That's unfortunate, but that's what it really is. And so looking at that and kind of unversing that or reversing all that, like, you know, that's really what has helped me kind of figure out ways to drive success there. But yeah, I mean, it, it's been, been a learning curve. And I think I've just gotten more comfortable with myself. Like, you know, hey, I'm going to go into these rooms and not feel like I'm un uncomfortable. Because a lot of times we, we have a hard time accepting that we belong there like i am here for a reason if i was not good at what i do or my product was not good i would not be in this room with you and the minute that i changed that mindset that hey you need me here more than i need you that changed everything for me that's when we actually start getting paid for our work instead of just doing it as a quote unquote way to meet diversity and inclusion which they often look at as a charity event for for larger institutions that's powerful and something that I can personally relate to. You think you're doing people a favor by making it easy to just have access to you and this and that, but value is really exchanged when there is, a, you know, a transaction. When you are exchanging value for whatever it is that they're giving to you in response, I think that is fantastic. And a lot of people have poured into you. A lot of people have done things that have pushed you forward. And I know that you are constantly sort of referencing the people who you are standing on the shoulders of. If you were to look at your clientele, what's the most valuable thing that you do for them? And you've probably said this in your own way throughout this conversation, which has been phenomenal in terms of the nuggets that you've been sprinkling through on this yellow brick road to success that you've had. But what's the most valuable things that you do for clients of Home Lending Pal, whether that be lenders or people who are coming out and looking to buy a home? I tell them the truth of data. Like that is the most valuable thing I do. Like, you know, I, I tell them the truth of data. You can't argue numbers. And oftentimes people will either boost stuff up or push stuff down for their own selfish benefit. You know, our system right now, regardless of what, you know, we've had a couple scenarios where we have been within $2,000 of what the backend underwriters have shown that this person will get approved for. But yet, or actually, like, actually, there's a difference between, I guess, let me take a step back. There's a difference between being pre-approved and pre-qualified. Pre-approved, think of it like a, it's an estimate. You can utilize that estimate, but it's still an estimate. They have not gone and verified your financial and credit information to determine that you are qualified. So I could tell you that you're pre-approved for $325,000 for a home along that amount. And oftentimes, that's why when you get those packages in the mail that say, hey, you have a credit card that you're pre-approved for $250,000, but you still have to apply. When you submit that application, that's when you get pre-qualified. You might notice that, oh, well, it told me I got pre-approved for $200,000, but then when I actually submit it, I was only qualified for $85,000. We still deal with that same process where people will come in and our, our application, our, our calculations, so we have a calculation that shows buying power. 
And that buying power takes into consideration not only what you can buy right now based on your savings, what you could pay for right now, but it also looks at like like a like a rainy day fund. Like if I don't if something bad happens, like an emergency or something, or I lose my job, can I also maintain to keep this house? And so that's what we base it off of. That's what lenders are basing it off of. So we've had times or scenarios where a person has only been pre-qualified for like $125,000, $130,000. And we've been within literally $1,500 or less of what the lender said they would be pre-qualified for. But the LO, the person they were working with, gave them a pre-approval letter for $325,000. So now you're going looking at a home that's $325,000 and one of two things happened. Either they're able to, to work the system and let you get qualified for that home and you actually buy it and you truly can't afford it. So now you're stressing left or right because you can't afford it. Or you go submit your application and it's way lower than what you were told and now you're just completely turned off. You're just completely upset. Like, man, I thought I was uh, pre, pre-approved for 325000 So now you think the opportunity for home ownership just doesn't exist for you. And so that's one of the things that we're trying to work on in terms of the system and helping people learn from that. But you know, that's been the, the, the learning curve that we've had. And we've had to talk about to, to consumers, like how to accept that, but also how to improve that. So if you really want to get to 325, the system will show you how to get there. But that's the biggest thing. I mean, and then going in, obviously, on the, the, the client side is going into those rooms and really making them believe that underserved communities want to buy homes. Like there's often this mindset that there's no money to be made with minorities and women. And yes, I've had executives tell me that to my face that, oh, you know, there's no money to be made there. When obviously there, there is, but uh, the low to moderate income community we have an opportunity, like we control most of America. Like we're, we're our population, low to moderate is technically half of America right now. So to say that there's no money to be made there is, is ludicrous to me, but we also have to show that we do want to, to build wealth and we want to buy homes and have home ownership, especially with the way that inflation is causing rent to rise. Like I said, like I'm paying more in rent now in Orlando, Florida, than when I was paying for a downtown high rise condo in Brickell in Miami, which is crazy. You know, so that's not sustainable. We have to figure out ways to make affordable living accessible to everyone. And that's really the, the passion that I, I speak from, but also the, the process that I, I go in. And, you know, when people come to my app, whether it's accurate or not, you know, in those scenarios, even if we're off, it still gives me data and details that I can reference when I'm talking to lenders, when I'm talking to uh, government, when I'm talking to Congress about, hey, here are where the problems are. And we need to find a way to solve that. But And for years, they would tell you that, oh, buying a home is such a human-related activity. This is the first time ever that data and technology are readily accessible. Everything that you need to go through underwriting is usually available in some type of digital form. So we have the ability to really give, again, a better understanding of what home ownership looks like to more Americans to allow them that process, that opportunity to chase that dream. And you can't deny that. You can't argue that. Only thing you can do now is say that, hey, regulation and laws and then opportunities to see success, policymaking has to change for that to happen. Passion and process. I love that. And this has been super illuminating, actually, to hear your story and get to know you and appreciate you sharing as much as you did about your background, your influences growing up and the struggles and triumphs that you've had along the way. I think this will resonate with a lot of people who are in a similar situation. And uh, thank you. Thank for you. coming in and allowing uh, and welcoming us into Orlando uh, and exploring a little bit more into your story. Uh, with that, we want to leave you with two things. One, let people know how they can get in touch with you if they really like what you were saying today and they can somehow get connected with you or on your schedule. 
How should they go about doing that? What's the right process for you? Yeah, I mean, you can find me at, you know, at Brian Young or HLP on Instagram. Uh, you can also add me on LinkedIn, uh, Brian Young. Uh, you put in Home Lending Pal, I should pop up. You can also email us at hello at homelendingpal.com. Uh, you can download the app from both the Android and iPhone stores uh, by going to Home Lending Pal and uh, downloading the app. And uh, we look forward to getting more people to support this mission, this movement. And uh, we have some big things coming up that we're preparing to do uh, across the country that are really more movements. We're going to be doing conferences, which are going to bring in professional athletes, fintech influencers, uh, big banking institutions, like I said. And, and really, we're going to make it a one or two day conference in which we're going to talk about a lot of the things that I'm sharing here in a greater scope and really give people a, a better understanding of how to get to that next level of success and wealth. And so uh, stay tuned for that. And we're really excited to share more with you. If you're even thinking about getting into a home, it's worth a shot. It's worth downloading the app and seeing uh, what it tells you about what you could do um, in a house. Uh, real estate is, is not going anywhere. And the more that you know, the better you'll be equipped to enter the market out there. Um, so thank you again for that, Brian. And with that, we will leave you with the last word. Thank you guys for having me. It's been a pleasure. And a pleasure it has been. Hopefully your nephew back there added one more future profession to his list. Uh, and until next time, we bid you adieu. Thank you. Thank you for joining this week's episode of Diverse Tech Founders Podcast. I'm Abraham J. Williamson, and we had yet another great guest to pop in. And if you enjoyed today's podcast recording, please give us a rating. You can do it right now on iTunes or Spotify or whatever, and we'll see you next week.